right, everybody, it's that time again, another episode of the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. My name's Jesse Jones, and on the show this week, we have Mr. Rob Samuels of Maker's Mark. That's right, one of the biggest and best bourbon companies in the world. He's here, he's on the program. It was a great conversation. He really is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to bourbon and bourbon history, and I think that's because his family has been a part of it since the very beginning. He's a great guy. We had a good talk. I I enjoyed talking to him. You know when you're talking to somebody and they just know what they're talking about and you can feel that passion coming through as you speak to them? That's this conversation, and I hope that's what you guys take away from it. If you like the show, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Find us on Instagram, like us there, then head on over to YouTube because later in the week we'll have the video version of this episode up. But for right now, it's time. Time to start the show. This is Rob Samuels of Maker's Mark on the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. So what led you to bourbon? Uh, I've really, when I was up north, I was a scotch guy. It was just always so much easier. It gets so much colder, you know. So, uh... Then I moved down south, and it just never got that cold. And and Laphroaig is a is a cold drink. It can't be a uh, July evening, and you break out in Laphroaig, and and you're not going to do anything but sweat your pants off. Did you ever get to the point where you really liked Laphroaig, or was it just the the challenge of you had to work hard to like? Well, it's sort of where I started. The guy that turned me on to uh, whiskey to begin with, he started mm-hmm. me off with Laphroaig. So, uh, my wife, he was actually shooting a documentary at the time and my wife has it on video somewhere. Uh, me and him, we drink Laphroaig and then she says on camera, this is going to be a problem at some point. And I want it to be chronicled that it started here. So that was just sort of, uh, that was my break-in point. So that was to me the standard and everything that came after Laphroaig, it was sort of like, oh, this is okay. This is not as strong. This is not as peaty. This is not as smoky. <laughs> yeah, it's just that bottle of whiskey. You open as soon as you uh, open that bottle of Laphroaig, it takes you there with all that iodine. Just so you can envision that coastline of Isla. Oh, completely. It, it, it's such a um, when you open it, it's not like anything else you're going to open. Like it, it hits you hard and it hits you immediately. Here's one little bit of trivia for makers that I bet not even our team members here know at the distillery. Um, you know, my grandparents started in the fifties and they didn't, they didn't sell anything until their bourbon that they made was fully mature. They didn't source. Um, but the only thing he did was he had, he was very close friends with the founding family of Glenmorangie Scotch. And he actually took the steamer over to Scotland with this family that at the time had owned Glenmorangie for multiple generations. And he bought, he selected some barrels of their best Scotch whiskey. And he bottled it. My grandfather bottled it and brought it over. And he like brokered it around just as something fun to do while his bourbon aged over time. Oh, wow. I actually have a few bottles of his scotch. I bet there's not like, I bet, I bet there's not one person here at Maker's Market ever that even knows that story. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, I have like four or five bottles, believe it or not. It was just, that was the one thing. And I don't even think that generated any revenue. (laughs) 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 My dad tells the story that the family had gone from eating steak on fine china. Just the idea of, of uh, operating month after month, year after year with overhead and expenses with no sales. And this was his one, his one sort of idea to try to generate a little bit of revenue. And I don't even, I don't even think that worked out, <laughs> to be honest. Well, and, and that's sort of where I wanted to start today. Um, real quick, just so I've got it for the video feed. Uh, welcome, sir. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. When we put together the list of people we wanted to talk to, Maker, you can't have a conversation about the modern age of whiskey without including Maker's Mark. Like you guys are responsible for so much of 
really just the uh, public's awareness of bourbon whiskey as a, a a daily sipper. And I'll tell I'll tell you it all for for makers in many ways it all started right here in this room where where I'm you know visiting with you. Um, but just my name's Rob Samuels. I'm the eighth generation of our family involved with making whiskey here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Um, it were my grandparents, Bill and Margie Samuels, in 1952. They went to the courthouse in Lebanon, Kentucky, and they paid $35,000 for about 300 acres of land. And for those of you that are in the, uh, you know, your viewership that have been here to the distillery, you wouldn't ever choose this site um, for any other reason other than nature. And that's, I mean, principally the reason they chose this site was because of the water source. And I was up there early this morning. Um, we have a 14 acre spring fed lake, which has always only ever been our single source of supply for water. So there's literally a pipe that goes directly from this lake down into the basement of the distillery. So all the water for our process comes directly, comes directly out of the lake. But um, to, in my opinion, to truly appreciate what inspired my grandparents to chase their dream, which collectively would become known as Maker's Mark, I do think it's helpful to understand a little bit about what came before Maker's Mark, because our family had made pretty god-awful whiskey for a few hundred years prior, prior to Maker's Mark. And we trace our lineage all the way back to Samuel Scotland, which I've been to. My father, Bill Samuels, and I visited um, Samuel, Scotland in 1982, small rural farming uh, community where the Samuels had actually distilled from grain as far back as the late 1500s, migrating to this country in 1680. And we were in southwestern Pennsylvania for a century. And it was actually my namesake, Robert Samuels, who was a, a captain in the Cumberland County, Pennsylvania militia who fought in the Revolutionary War. He, would, he also fought in what would become known as the Whiskey Rebellion. And Robert Samuels decided to move south uh, in 1779 and settle on a land grant before Kentucky existed. Oh, wow. when, much of, when much of the modern, uh, when much of uh, modern day Kentucky was, uh, was part of Virginia. And Robert Samuels settled on a land grant, 60 acres. Um, for those, if you're familiar with uh, Bardstown, it's about 20 miles uh, west of Bardstown. And we know right here on the wall, right here, we have authentic record that Robert Samuels distilled um, in, in 1779. And he also had two cows. <laughs> we know that. Um, and it was his grandson, Taylor William Samuels, in 1840, built our family's first commercial distillery on the land grant farm. That distillery, like so many others, was sort of big mass production. There weren't national brands or premium, there wasn't a premium category, um, but that T.W. Samuels distillery um, was commercially viable to the point where it was passed down for almost a century. And it were my grandparents, believe it or not. Um, my grandparents, I'll show you a picture. This is, uh, these, are my, these are the founders of Maker's Mark. But this, uh, this picture was actually taken at um, the T.W. Samuels Distillery. And my grandparents had been classmates at university. They married in 1933, which is a pretty important year for all of us in the whiskey business, and which was the year Prohibition was repealed. And these two right here led the uh, reopening. They built a new distillery at the T.W. Samuels site with my great-grandfather, Leslie Samuels. And the, the distillery that they rebuilt, T.W. Samuels, was the fifth distillery um, to reopen in, um, in America after Prohibition. And it was about, it was, uh, this picture was taken, so they started rebuilding that distillery in 1934, and they, they had a grand reopening in 1938, which is when this picture was taken. And then in 1944, they sold that distillery and they sold it simply because they weren't inspired by doing what everybody else was doing. Right. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, looking back and the more um, time I spent here and the more time I spent talking to my dad and people that knew my grandparents, my grandfather, he was not 
a commercial person. He was not a businessman. And it's so ironic looking back that you have someone who was not, didn't have a business orientation who ended up in many ways changing the course of an industry. Completely. <laughs> he, he, he was, it was your father that really brought the advertising into the, into the mix, wasn't it? Well, we were a Kentucky only brand for so long. It's uh, it was a long, long, long road. I mean, you think about, they acquired the property in 1952. My The only thing my grandfather was interested in was the whiskey. And he had broken down each and every step of the process, had a very clear taste vision in mind. And each and every step of the process, it was not this business orientation. It was a real pursuit of flavor, lifting flavor up, rich, creamy, full flavor and balanced. He wanted to get rid of the bite. And that's, that's what he focused on. And it was my grandmother who, who really did everything else. Right. And she was the one really before distilleries thought about hospitality. Um, she was the one who, who thought differently about the place. And she said that if the place were to celebrate the values of his handmade bourbon, that the place would become the soul. And she set this up, the master plan for the home, not like an engineer would design a factory, but she set it up like you would design your home because they did not, he did, my grandfather did not like marketing. I mean, he thought marketing in the traditional way was almost rude. Right. You know, screaming the loudest. So they thought, what's more endearing to a friend than to have them to your home? So they set everything up here in the very beginning with this idea of swinging open the doors to have friends come visit. Um, I have a picture here, another fun one. You know, today we have 23 team members on our tasting panel. And um, it's, it's, it's really the most important thing we do, which is manage consistency over time. But in the beginning, he was the tasting panel. Wow. And he's here at this table. And he kept his fingers crossed that month after month, year after year, would he be able to achieve his taste vision? And um, I actually have all these mini bottles where he had this really extensive collection of mini bottles before distilleries produced mini bottles in the way that you think of it today. Right. The only market for these little bitty bottles were the train, you know, the, the, the rail systems. But, um, but this was his obsession. And, and it was in um, late 1958, after waiting six years for those first barrels to mature over time, that he felt like he had achieved a taste vision. You know, soft red winter wheat is the flavoring grain, a roller mill to, to grind the grain to get to the starch, slow cook process, the uh, propagating the yeast that had been in the family for more than 100 years on site, rotating barrels through the maturation process, you know, in that six barrel warehouse starting at the top. And then after two summers, moving them through the maturation so that each group of 19 barrels would be consistently matured over time. And then ultimately bottling to taste, not to a specific age, but bottling to taste. On average, a little over six years, but bottling to taste. Um, Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington was our first customer. And think I'm glad my grandfather was a patient person because you know, would consumers ever be interested other than here in Kentucky for about the first 20 plus years? The answer was no. Right. And he was fine to wait. I mean, most people would, you know, in today's business environment, if you're not an overnight success, people lose interest. They move on. Exactly. And uh, Keeneland, if you've been, spent, you know, I'm sure you spent a lot of time in Kentucky. Keeneland is to many of us, the cultural sort of thoroughbred um, heart and soul of Kentucky. And they were, they purchased the first six cases that were ever sold. They were our first customer. They're still our largest single location customer anywhere in the world. And he was fine just to sort of, his friends were interested. Um, some of the leading hotels were interested, um, leading uh, bars here in Kentucky. But there was this big moment. And we think it's the, the first time it was the first time ever that a privately held company was featured on the center column front page of the Wall Street Journal. It was 1980. 
and the Wall Street Journal told this story of a quirky little distillery in Marion County, Kentucky, that goes against the grain to make its mark. And and after that, it was just. You know what it was? It was like it wasn't a tidal wave of interest, but it was budding interest in all the leading cities in America all at once. Right. So it was like the top 25 bartenders in all the top cities were interested. People that were willing to search for beyond things that were mainstream were interested. I mean, there were hundreds of letters that were written from consumers, you know, folks that were curious about this idea of a more elevated bourbon experience. And that's really what my grandparents and my dad did for years was respond to all these letters and help you as a customer connect with a bottle. Really? That personal, like that one-on-one? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. That's where it all, we can trace it back to like where the first bottle went in nearly every state. Oh, wow. The first bottle in North Carolina was a gentleman um, named Jack Newton who had come to the Kentucky Derby for many years with his, uh, with his, his wife and his, his, uh, his brothers, that was their thing they did every year for a number of years. And they, they discovered Maker's Mark. They'd come down to the distillery as part of their Kentucky experience. And he, he went back to North Carolina and started raising hell in North Carolina because the ABC stores didn't have Maker's Mark. And he lived in Wilmington, as you know, which is on the southern end of the coast. Yep. I and, lived there uh, for a few years myself. Oh, uh, you lived? Did you, you lived in Wilmington? Oh, yes. As soon as this I left guy, New York. Uh, really? I spent That's a couple years in Wilmington to uh, to wash the smell of Subway off of me. Uh, well, Jack Newton brought Maker's Mark to North Carolina. It was the first ABC store was in uh, Wilmington, and that's that. They were they were that was the way. I mean, it was uh, Delilah's in Chicago, um, and uh, he. You know, again, they never thought of it as a business. It was more, it was a hobby. And to my grandfather, what success looked like was, was flavor driven. And he's, you know, many of his closest friends were the other distillers. I mean, I'm sitting here in a room, this one conference room at the distillery. And literally this is, this is our one conference room. And here on the wall, uh, we have um, Pappy Van Winkle. We have Mr. Shapiro, who was one of the brothers that, you know, found Heaven Hill. We have Colonel Jim Bean, Jerry Bean, Mr. Motlow, who was the last member of the, I mean, these were all not just icons at the end of the day. This was a group of people that were very, very good friends. And that's awesome. He wanted but, to make a bottle of whiskey. He'd be proud to share with, with these folks. And, and that's where it all started. Like that's the original uh, intent was to create a bourbon that he could share, like you just said, mm-hmm. and to, maybe not for national consumption, but for the general consumer have something that didn't have uh, the harsh edge that some of the other bourbons at the time had. Yep. And he spent a good deal perfecting that, didn't he, before he even rolled it out? Well, we had 160 years in the industry. <laughs> he, you know, he had worked, he grew up in it and he had worked at the TW Samuels distillery off and on um, for, for so many years so his flavor exploration went in a lot of different direction. He, he, he got input from a lot of the legends in the business. Um, he and my grandmother had baked loaves of bread to find the soft red winter wheat that would fit their palate. Um, That's such a smart way to do that too. In, instead of uh, risking going the, wrong, going the wrong way for a long period of time. I thought the bread trick was just masterful. Well, and, and you know, my, my grandmother, she was the one, I think in, in his mind, he would name the whiskey after the family, which is what so many whiskey makers had done. Right. And she suggested that it would confuse customers and that the name and the bottle design should, should celebrate the values of the whiskey. And she had, she had this uh, really wonderful collection of English pewter, which I have. And if you can keep a secret, we are going to bring out next year my grandmother's complete collection of English pewter. Oh, wow. It's, uh, I think it's 160 pieces. Wow. And she would talk a lot about the shared values of the handmade pewter makers. The men and women would always make a mark to celebrate handmade. And she said he should make his mark. So the mark of the maker and the maker's mark is celebrated with the star SIV, his mark, his legacy. 
um, celebrating handmade, um, the handmade essence of every drop of whiskey in every bottle. She chose to spell the word whiskey as the Scotch distillers. Uh, without any because of the Scottish heritage of the Samuels family. Um, she was adamant that every label be printed and torn by hand. And that what better way to finish off the handmade process than to hand up each bottle. Which nobody was doing at, at that point, right? No, no. And she was wise enough to, you know, to trademark the dripping in red wax. Um, but we have the first bottle. So Keeneland purchased the first six cases, but we have, we have the very first bottle. And if I were, you know, if you were looking at it, it, it essentially looks exactly as, as, as this bottle. It's never changed. Um, and that, you know, that was a when she became the first female ever from a distillery to be inducted into the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. Fred Menick, who I think is just so wonderful for whiskey and what he's, you know, the interest he's brought to the category. Just a wealth of knowledge on the subject as well. He, he really is. And uh, he's a great storyteller. But he was a part of her induction. You know, he had written the book, Whiskey Women. And in uh, as part of her induction, Fred Minnick said that, in his opinion, Margie Samuels is the most underappreciated figure in the history of whiskey. But what's exciting to me and what's exciting today, I mean, I have a picture here on the wall of the first, the first day the whiskey was made um, here on site. You know, six years after that point, the whiskey would have been bottled and it would be Maker's Mark. Um, but there's nine, I think there's nine team members at that, that first day. Today we have 260 oh, wow. uh, team members. And we have a group of 40 people. All they do is rotate barrels. We have like 40 people that hand it bottles. Wow. Um, we have a group of people who are hand cutting labels. And staying true to their vision, the founding vision. Um, and, the, you know, what that means to us is about so much more than just celebrating the stories of the past. It's it's uh, it's their inspiration and their vision is the guiding light for the future. And really, they their legacy, even though they're not with us um, directly, their legacy and that vision inspires everything we do, everything from all of the you know, we made one product forever. Sixty years, we were the only distillery in the world to make one product. Everything we've released after that point was built on their foundation and their guiding light, the hospitality, the innovation, the community, and uh, and giving back, which is uh, which is very important to me and very important to our team. Well, and and so much of what you guys have accomplished over that time period it parallels the rise of bourbon publicly to. The, the general consumer. Uh, in 1980, the Wall Street Journal, uh, that ad came at a time when bourbon was at a historic low in terms of everybody. In it, People had moved on to the clear spirits, the vodka, the gins. It, it was no longer um, a cool, for lack of a better way of saying it, thing it to drink. That. It was worse than that. <laughs> My dad told me when he first got in the business in the late 60s, no, was, I think it was, I think he got, Maybe it was like 1971. He said there were multiple distilleries in Kentucky that were knocking warehouses down because they couldn't afford to maintain empty warehouses. So they just demolished them. And today, 2020, you have nearly every distillery adding capacity and growing. Right. Um, and the cultural aspects is, it, it, of what Kentucky means is really exciting as well because, you know, this is the Commonwealth has such a rich storied history. Bourbon is an important part of that, and we've always appreciated what that means and the intersections with thoroughbred racing and culinary and, um, and the music. It's just a magnet for people to want to come live it with us. But it all can be traced back to your grandfather's uh, original idea of creating a more palatable bourbon that could be enjoyed by everybody and not just the bourbon drinker who wants that burn. He created something that had legs. <laughs> well, he, you know, it was a nice moment. I, I, I lose track of time, but uh, it was like two or three years ago when Food and Wine Magazine brought together this panel of, uh, of whiskey-oriented leaders, you know, uh, whiskey writers, master distillers, brand owners, and all but two recognized Maker's Mark as the most important brand that's ever, bourbon brand that's ever been made. And to me, that was a really nice recognition that their founding vision when they settled here 
uh, in the early 1950s that in many ways that was the beginning of the modern era of bourbon and uh, and it's you know it's wonderful to see to see folks be drawn to it you know folks all over the world well and i think for a lot of people it is that brand recognition that Maker's Mark is the first thing a lot of people drink when they start drinking bourbon. It has that trust, so brand mm-hmm. trust associated with it, that if somebody is given a bottle of Maker's Mark, even if they know nothing about bourbon, they've heard about Maker's Mark and they know they're going to get a good sip. Yeah, well, that, that aspect has been just built over time. It was, it was, I don't know, 25 years or so before the next legacy distillery in Kentucky you know, it was, we had no growth for all those years through the 50s, the 60s, into the 70s. And then finally, as we began to grow, it was when many of the other big distilleries started declining. And it was a number of years, you know, since we started to grow in, in uh, 1980. Why do you we, think that was? I just think it was a trend well beyond bourbon that there are, you know, uh, consumers willing to explore beyond mainstream. Started with a very small uh, group of people that has just expanded over time. Um, and it influenced many categories beyond bourbon, you know, beyond spirits. Um, but as we began to grow, many of the other distilleries started going the other way. And we've, we've been supply constrained since 1980, where most every year we've had more supply than demand. And many of the other distilleries had the opposite problem, which is they had more demand or more barrels inventory than they had customers. And that's when we saw a lot of the legacy distilleries start to release the bottlings. Um, but uh, wow! So that's yeah. some history. And your grandfather, he then your father took over for him, and yeah. and ushered in the second era of of Maker's Mark, which was really your grandfather got the recipe perfect, and then your father was responsible for really getting the word out there and taking over the world more or less he did he did it he did an awful lot i tell you i mean he was uh he's chairman emeritus my father bill samuels is uh he's 80 years old uh, he he was able to figure out a way to connect with customers in a way that my grandfather was comfortable because my, again my uh, we've had this we hired he had my grandfather hired an agent advertising agency that we still work with believe it or not We've worked with them for almost 50 years. We think it's the longest relationship with a product of any product made in America. And there's all these funny stories about at the agency, they would have a meeting, a marketing meeting. And my grandfather, when he would get uncomfortable, he would get up, excuse himself to go to the restroom, and he just wouldn't come back to the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't like marketing. So my dad, what my father was able to do was to figure out a way to talk to customers that made my grandfather comfortable. Marketing that didn't feel like marketing. Marketing that was more personal. Marketing that was more one at a time versus screaming the loudest. And then, you know, to have a little bit of fun, much like you would with a friend. I mean, we take what we do here at the distillery seriously, and it is the it is what the fine makers mark. But out in the world with consumers, and like you would with a friend, it's okay to smile and have some fun. Uh, so yes, my father built our marketing approach, which is very different than the way most brands are built. Um, he just, he never took a business school class. He's not a marketer. My dad, he's, he was actually an aerospace engineer. Oh, wow. So he was, he's a rocket scientist and has a graduate degree in physics from Berkeley and was studying under one of the founders of NASA out in California when he accidentally actually shot off a rocket inside of a building. <laughs> it was not on purpose, but he, it was in that moment that um, everyone sort of involved said, maybe, maybe he ought to go back to Kentucky to <laughs> get in the whiskey business with his family, which he did. Um, and, I, you know, to me here at the distillery, he gets, my dad gets a lot of credit for the, the marketing but he's done a lot more than that. One of the aspects that I'm super proud of is he, over his four decades, he probably spent 50% of his time giving back to the community, serving on boards, raising money for different causes. And he instilled that in this entire team where I think if you were to go around and talk to everybody, it's like, what are you proudest of? Um, 
beyond the whiskey, it's that you have a brand and a place that has a higher purpose and points out into the world for that higher purpose. Um, and That's he, amazing. He, he ingrained that into us. I mean, one just one example is through this pandemic. I mean, maybe no more hard hit group than the bartenders in the hospitality industry that just Agreed. just disappeared. I mean, it was March 16th here in Kentucky when the governor made the very difficult decision to close restaurants and bars. Mm-hmm. And the hospitality industry oftentimes does not have a safety net. And Chef Ed Lee, the uh, the uh, James Beard Award winning uh, owner of 610 Magnolia, which is a wonderful restaurant in Old Louisville, that night he made the decision to convert his restaurant into um, a food kit, you know, a kitchen to serve the hospitality industry, a relief a relief center. That's and awesome. He served like I think 200 meals that night to bartenders and to servers. And with and within three weeks, in partnership with Makers Mark, we extended that to 19 cities, and we've served more than 600,000 meals. Oh wow! Uh, it, it's such a million dollars. I, I don't think people that aren't directly affected understand just the reach that this has had on the service industry, restaurants, bars. Uh, I've been a stand-up for 12, 13 years, and once they took away your ability to get with a group of people. I've got friends that have been doing this for 20 years that are working construction now. Really? You, you know what I mean? And and a lot of folks just don't have the wherewithal to see past their own industry and to understand that, yes, there are, if it didn't affect you, that doesn't mean that it didn't affect someone and that there are a lot of good people that really restaurants and bars bring the heart and soul of a community together because it gives them a place to fellowship, you know? So uh, without that, you're just creating silos for a community with nowhere to go. So it's good work that you guys are doing. We actually are releasing this uh, community batch. And through the release, I wish I had a bottle here to show you. It's uh, it's available. I think it will be available in 10 states. Um, 100% of the proceeds are to benefit the Lee initiative. Awesome. And it's a, it's, it's a combination of 37 different Maker's Mark private select custom barrel recipes that some of our leading um, restaurant and bar partners had made over time. And we blended them together. It was the first time we ever did barrel batting. And, um, and we bottled 7,500 bottles, um, recognized each one of the 36 or seven um, customer partners that are with us on this. And uh, we'll raise, I mean, I think the, we, anywhere from 600000 to a million dollars through this effort, Beautiful. in addition to everything. Um, but it, that's, were it not for bartenders, were it not for like the leading bartenders, Maker's Mark never, you know, would not be here today. I mean, it's totally. It exist. Who, who do we, who do we ask when we're looking for a new drink? Yeah. You, you ask the guy behind the bar, what would you recommend? That's exactly right. That's uh wow. So, the story of you guys, it, I just, I can't really get over uh, just the full immersive maker's mark has been in it since the beginning. It just, it's astounding to me. And, you know, you mentioned my dad, Bill, I think when you're able to come visit us, I tell people here on site and his legacy is so great within makers, but to me, you experience his legacy here on site when you step inside our distillery. Because when you step right inside the distillery, it gives the illusion that you're looking into a mirror, but you're not. Um, what, what you're actually looking, you step first into the original distillery that my grandparents built. And after about 25 years of steady growth, my dad chose to expand our distillery in a way I don't think any distillery in America had ever expanded, which was he resisted the temptation to expand in the most efficient way. You know, most uh, most manufacturing sites, most distilleries, once they hit it like a tipping point, it's how do you, you know, bring down your cost base, uh, you know, becoming more efficient. And he said, we're not going to do that. He built a second distillery identical to the first 
identical. And it was, I mean, this was back in the late 90s, and it was several million dollars more expensive to expand in that way. And probably had a lot of people telling him not to do that. Everybody, everything we've always done, people tell us not to do. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, the idea being exact same equipment, exact same process equals consistency over time. Right. And then um, seven years ago, we built, we finished construction of our third distillery. So in the one building, um, we have identical triplets. And it's also worth mentioning that we're a single source of supply which means every drop of whiskey that's ever been in a bottle of Maker's Mark, we made. And every bottle of Maker's, every drop of whiskey that's ever been made in our distillery has never been anywhere other than a bottle of Maker's Mark. So single source of supply. And as you know, there's so much, you know, behind the curtain, there's so much movement of whiskey from distilleries back and forth, and, but single source of supply. There's not a lot of people that can say that. Uh, and, and even fewer that can say it honestly. And started from scratch. And that's, I mean, that was, that was the last conversation I ever had with my grandfather. It was 1992 as I was heading off to university. Um, he was sick. He, he was 82 years old. He had, he had battled can, cancer like seven years earlier and sort of came through it. And then it, his cancer had come back and he was dizzy all the time from the treatments. But he, it was, I was heading off to university and he, he asked me to go to lunch at the Pendennis Club, which the Pendennis Club is, especially with bartenders, is, is celebrated because that's where the old-fashioned cocktail was thought to have been created back in the 1800s. Really? This old-world club. and I mean, I remember like it was yesterday. So this was 28 years ago. I was 18 years old. We sat in the main dining room for lunch and we, we had like a bowl of soup. And it was a, it was really special for me to hear him reflect back on what he had created. And um, you know he was he was proud that he never wavered from his vision, which is so much easier to stay true to who you are when you have immediate success. But he talked about all of the well-intended pressure put on him in the first 30 years when we didn't have any customers to go conform to where the market was at that time. Right. And he, you know, he just shared with me how proud he was that he never wavered from his vision. And that's what's, that's, what's inspiring here. You feel it amongst our team here when you go meet anybody um, that it's, there's, there's the staying true to the founding, to the founding spirit, the founding vision. Um, that lives here every day. Well, and all good products come from that passion. I think that's been my favorite part of bourbon since I got involved with the industry is just every, nobody's doing this because they have to. Everybody's doing this because they want to. And the ones that have been the most successful at it have let it happen organically and have built their skill sets over time. And you're not ever tasting anybody that started yesterday, what you're tasting are people's work that have been, has evolved over the years to create uh, consistency and quality that you don't get if you don't care about it. I think that's true. And, you know, you have what you have in Kentucky, still 90, I think 96 or 97% of all bourbon is still made here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. The, the uh, mayor of Louisville says everything that the 3% that's not made here is counterfeit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like champagne. They'll have to start uh, calling it bourbon instead of bourbon. Well, in, uh, it's, it's a magical place. It's not an accident that 96% of it's made here. There are a lot of reasons why. Um, but we still work together as an industry. And I, I don't know the exact numbers. To, to 10 years ago, there were nine distilleries in Kentucky, licensed distilleries. Today, I think there's 60. In oh, really? Nearly all of the distilleries are members of the Kentucky Distillers Association. And it's pretty special to have essentially an entire industry join hands to work together for the betterment of the Commonwealth, for the betterment of the industry. Um, that's how the bourbon trail came to be. And that's been the most impressive part. You talk to uh, one distiller and you ask them, what are you drinking right now? Like other industries would would 
you know, my stuff, I'm, I'm, my stuff's what I'm doing right now, but everybody you talk to, it's like, oh, well, our stuff's really good, but I also love this. And I also love that. And, and you guys take care of one another, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, like you're not just drinking your own juice, so to speak. Well, we work together. There's so much of that. Many of us have been family friends for decades and decades and decades. Um, and you know, it's, there are lots of examples of industries where not only do they not work together, where they almost work against each other. Right. Animosity uh, towards the competitor. Yeah. That's, do you that's think that's by, do you think that's because you guys went through such a hard time together? Like the, the ones Good that question. have been at it since uh, post, um, as soon as prohibition ended and then every, and then world war two, and then everybody went through the downswing of bourbon. The core people that have been at play since the 50s, a lot of them that are still around, you guys all went through that together. Went through it together thick and thin. Um, I think, you know, the fact that there are families involved with most of the, the legacy distilleries, when you, when, you're, when you have a family connection to something, you think differently about the future. Of course. I mean, really, I... We, we spend a hell of a lot more time thinking about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. We're actually thinking about a project that's a hundred year vision, you know, Oaks sustainability, things that we need to be doing as a leader in the industry that I will, I will not see the benefit of. Right. Um, and when you, I think, I think it's thick and thin through the generations. I think it's family. I think we have pretty amazing leadership in the Kentucky Distillers Association. Um, I, I give a lot. I mean, the heritage members pay the vast majority of the dues, but almost all of the members see great value in bringing all of the new distilleries, the experimental distilleries along with us and getting their input. We don't always agree on everything, but in the end, there's a common vision. That's awesome. It, it's it's taking care of the past while looking towards the future. Uh, is it ever daunting? Like with what your grandfather did and what your father did or has done, uh, what was, what was, um, there's a, there's a quote of yours that I like uh, of what your father told you when you started. Mm -hmm. Don't screw up the whiskey. Yep. That's the one. That's, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, yeah. I, you've got so much. Do you ever feel the pressure of, of just your legacy? I don't, I don't really think of it in terms of pressure. Um, I think what energizes me is the same thing that energizes our entire team here. And it's, we're blessed that we have a brand that was born from the vision of a craftsman and his wife. And we live in this era where so much of everything just falls out of a marketing presentation or is created by an agency. And you peel back the layers. Not, I mean, not just within whiskey, but across everything. It's it's always brand led, um, and we're blessed that this brand, Maker's Mark, happened to be created by two passionate people, a craftsman and his wife, and it's real. Um, and that's what and the consumer they, can feel. The consumer can feel the real, and I think they can. Fake might make it for a little bit, but a. a true loyal brand uh, consumer will smell out fake eventually and come back to the authentic so. thing. That's what we hear. I, 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 I think so. And my dad, he, I'll never forget it. it this was like two years ago. There was a visitor from, from Germany who spoke broken English at best. They didn't really have any uh, background with bourbon. And he was meant to spend like a full day with us here at the distillery. I'm like, what in the hell are we going to do for a full day? <laughs> and what are we going to talk about? He looked, you know, my dad, he said, he looked at me and he said, Rob, he said, just tell them that the bullshit's real. <laughs> like, All right. I can do that. I can remember that. Um, but it is, it, it is real. Um, and it's inspiring. So I don't think about it as pressure. I I want to. We have such a talented, capable group of people here at Maker's Mark, and I love trying to get our team to focus on things to where we can do excellence. And what are the things that we can do that are pioneering in the same way that Maker's Mark was when it was launched, and staying true to our founding vision, uh, putting a cause at the center of everything we do, 
Um, next time you come down, I will take you into the property. The distillery itself, you know, the Victorian village is is less than it's less than like four percent of our property. So we have a thousand acres. We manage hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres. Oh wow! Of uh, of uh, of the property as a nature preserve, as a water sanctuary, and um, beyond the community um, programs like the the Lee Initiative, our team is extremely energized by um, sustainability, rejuvenation, and ex- explore you know discovering flavors that are new to the world of whiskey. And ultimately, the whiskey we make comes from nature. And are we being the best possible stewards of nature? And what does the future look like for American white oak and farming practices, implications um, from grain that we grow? So it's there's exciting things. We're using Star Hill Farms almost as a research center. Wow. Would, you know, look forward to uh, to sharing more of that of that with you. But we have. Uh, we have about 150 acres of wheat growing, you know, that we just planted here on site. Right. And want to push the flavor boundaries, better understand what are the implications of farming practices on flavor. Um, when you come see us, we'll take, we'll walk you out onto this peninsula overlooking our water source. And the mother oak is a 400 year old American white oak tree. And the University of Kentucky pulled a tissue sample out of that American white oak tree. And there's a team right now mapping the genome for the first time ever of an American white oak tree. And so, you know, for the next hundred years, all American white oak trees will forever be compared to the signature resilient American white oak. And there are tremendous benefits to the sustainability of American white oak that we'll share with the, uh, with all of many industries uh, based on the research but it's it's those types of things and i don't know that we think of it as pressure um it's you know we've been given a great gift our while our founders were not marketing people were not business people they they left one hell of a foundation i was going to say they put that groundwork in and it is Mm -hmm. it is sustained yeah and we we like to do fewer things but let's do it better and do things that are true to Maker's Mark is. That's awesome. Yeah, I was supposed to go uh, for my 40th birthday was this year, and I was supposed to go to Kentucky and and see everyone. And due to the pandemic, I wasn't able to. And uh, that in part has played a role in starting this so that everything that uh, I didn't get to learn on that trip, uh, I can learn now and share with other people as we talk to people like you and other distillers in the area. And it's really been very eye-opening. Just everything you just said, it is, uh, it's every part of it. You're not just looking at your uh, distillation. You're looking at what goes into it, how to take care of the farmland. Cause you realize mm-hmm. the farmlands where you get your product from, and then looking at where it's going to go in the future, because you got to be mm-hmm. able to sustain that. And if it's not going to be there, you can't do what you do. Mm-hmm. Just everything that goes into the that thousand acres is is you guys are doing it the right way. It's just so well, impressive. And when you when you come see us, we uh, uh, distilleries in Kentucky were not allowed to serve cocktails, believe it or not, until five years ago. Really, it took us fifty years to get the damn law changed. But thankfully, <laughs> the KDA Kentucky Distillers Association together uh, in a in a very responsible way were able to get the the, the law changed. Um, and we opened a restaurant and have an extremely talented chef named Newman Miller. Um, he was featured on Top Chef when that whole program was set against the Kentucky backdrop. That was a good and season. This was, this was an amazing uh, thing for me. But you think about cocktails. And I'll be honest. I mean, my, my favorite cocktail, like last night when I sat with my wife after a very long day, it was like I poured Maker's Mark 101 proof over block ice. That was like, that was my cocktail. But bringing it together and the creativity of leading bartenders and complementing um, the flavors that live inherently within makers is so interesting. And we have a young lady named Amanda Humphrey who is thought of as was like one of the foremost talented bartenders in all of Europe. I mean, amongst her peers, if you were to ask the leading bartenders of London, 
who would be one of the more talented. She, her name always would come up and she moved. She, um, back in March, she moved from London, England to Bardstown, Kentucky. And she, she is leading our cocktail program. Oh, that's amazing. You will knock your socks off. And um, we're planting an innovation garden in partnership with uh, with Dan Barber and all sorts of good stuff. So happy belated birthday. And we'll make it uh, worth the wait when you're able to slip over here and, and come see us. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, and you said uh, Makers 101 a moment ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Makers, your original Makers Mark was the only product you guys produced forever. And then your father introduced... Uh, Makers 46 was one of his last offerings. Is that right? That, yes. Uh, we only distiller that I know of in the world through those decades that made only one expression. And my father, as he was nearing uh, retirement, it was really awesome for me because I had actually worked for a different company in the same industry for a decade and came back to Kentucky. And it was shortly thereafter that I, he would just, I, he was talking about this idea of wanting to create his perfect expression of who Maker's Mark could become. And as part of that, it was like, let's better understand more than we ever have uh, the flavor rep- the flavor range that lives in every drop of Maker's Mark and Cash Strength. And what were the flavor camps that he loved the most? And I actually have the whiteboard, like the, you know, like the poster board where he articulated the taste vision that led to the creation of Makers 46. It was, could there be a bit of a longer finish? Could there be a little more weight and viscosity and body? Could there be, you know, he loves the baking spices that live within Makers Mark, the nutmeg. And he had all these uh, flavor exploration calls with Brad Boswell, who is a third generation barrel maker. And at one point they agreed to experiment. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of experiments underway uh, here. And, you know, what I remember from that was everything that they experimented with was pretty damn good. Well, that also gave you a firsthand look at maybe what your grandfather had done when he started his brand. Exactly. You didn't get to you didn't get to see that then because of course you weren't here then, but then yep. you did get to see it with your dad and, and share that bond with him. I, I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing to get to see your father replicate something. He was so clear. He was so clear on his taste vision, which, which I love. It was like, that's the way my grandparents start. They did most, so many brands start with, here's the white space from a positioning standpoint, or here's the brand story. And then they go like, how do we go over here and make something? My grandfather did it the other way, which was flavor driven. My dad did the exact same thing. His perfect expression of Maker's Mark. And it was a nod to the Boswells and their wood science uh, that it was profile 46, 200-year-old French oak that is seared um, in a custom oven that we had to design, steered with radiant heat that came together with fully mature maker's mark. We learned later that it had to be at 50 degrees or cooler, so we built a cave here on site. And it boom, the you know, he was very pleased with achieving the, the, the taste vision. And that was that was 10 years ago. And it was through that experience that our team decided, wouldn't it be interesting if we let the leading bars and restaurants have have essentially the same opportunity by creating their own perfect expression of uh, of Maker's Mark? And that sort of idea with the creation of unique. Uh, finishing staves, all designed with purpose to accentuate the unique flavor camps that live within Maker's Mark that led to the creation of the private select custom barrel program. Um, In the 101 proof, that was something, that's the lowest proof my grandfather could bottle without any filtration. Okay. And he would keep a bottle here or there at the house, and that's what he would sip, sip on oftentimes. He would send a bottle or two out during the holidays to his closest friends. And we thought, you know what, just if we were to, what if we brought that back just, you know, just uh, just during the holidays like he did 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 
just to, you know, so folks can celebrate in a special way with their friends and their family. That's awesome. And you guys have sent me some, I, I could sit here and, and talk to you all day long. Uh, I know you're a very busy guy, but you're such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to bourbon and Maker's Mark. I, I could sit here and just talk to you forever. <laughs> I, you guys have sent me a couple things uh, to taste. And while we're on the subject of, of moving from Maker's Mark to the cask strength to the 101, I was wondering if you might want to um, uh, take a sip with me and, and walk me through maybe what we're, what we're talking about as we go through that. Let me, let me, let's do, why don't we do, I have, what do you, what do you have? I've got you? the Maker's, Maker's 101 and the cask strength. Why don't we do the 101 proof? That's, un, you know, Maker's Mark goes in the barrel at 110 proof. It's horribly inefficient to do so. Don't tell our finance team, but we spend an extra million dollars a month buying barrels because we go in the, in the barrel at 110 proof. Maker's Classic is bottled at 90 proof. So this is at a midpoint. It's unfiltered. And um, you why don't you taste the 101? I'm going to taste 46 cash. Nice, nice. That's what I have here. This is the, uh, but the 101 proof for my palate is it hits my palate. You get the, you get, I get a lot of uh, cherry. I get a lot of the richness, the creaminess, the, uh, the layered texture and viscosity. Um, it's just a beautiful proof point for the flavor delivery for my palate. You know, we all have, we all get to enjoy our, our own, the own, our own uniqueness of our own palates. But that is a really wonderful proof point for my palate. Oh, it's it's phenomenal. It, it's got that the, a complimentary heat. You definitely get the fruit. You get the you get your your caramel. You get your vanilla. But man, that that fruit and that oak really come through. Mm-hmm. And the creaminess. Mm. That is extremely good. And the weight. I don't know. I don't know how you describe it. Like the weight, the body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's layered, but it's still very, it's, you know, for me, it's, it still hangs on the uh, like front half of the palate. And, and the finish is so complimentary to the palate. It, it is not going away, but it's also not going away in a way that bothers you. Like there's no burn. It's not, it's not <laughs> hugging anything. It's sitting there. It, it's, it's a very balanced, very balanced pour. Well, here, here's what I would, here's what I would say. Just congratulations for for your passion and your interest. It's an open invitation for you and folks that uh, that you connect with. You know, we we are so proud of what we do here, and we love sharing it with our friends. So, just when it's convenient for you and and the world starts to open up a little bit, we will we look forward to having you visit. Most definitely, and uh, you you can't say that to uh, to me and not expect me to show up. So, I we look forward to it, and we'll toast properly. Hey, that sounds phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time today. You have been a pleasure to talk to. You're a wealth of knowledge about bourbon. Congratulations on everything your family has created. And uh, selfishly, thank you. Because uh, without you, I would have never probably found bourbon as Maker's Mark was one of the first things after uh, my my venture from scotch to bourbon. Maker's was one of the first ones I had. And I've not looked back. So thank you very much, sir. Love it. Thanks so much. See you soon. Take care now. There you have it, guys. Another episode of the Bourbon Showdown podcast. We want to thank Mr. Rob Samuels for being on the show today. I told you it was a good episode, right? I mean, the guy's just so smart. I sat there listening to him, and he's just like, he remembered things that from from 100 years ago. I can't remember things that happened three, maybe four days ago. And he's got, like, memorabilia on the wall of, of Pappy and all of the people that used, used to hang around. Imagine Pappy Van Winkle just hanging out with your grandpa. How cool would that be? But we really do want to thank him for being on the show today. And if he thinks I'm not going to show up at the distillery one day, he is mistaken. You invite me somewhere, I show up there. Just so you know, Rob, I'll be there. You never know when I might pop up. It might just be one day, hey, what's up? What's for dinner? You never know. It's going to happen. That much I do know. So thank you again, sir, for being on the program. It was wonderful talking to you. And for everybody, 
everybody listening at home. I know I plugged it at the beginning, but I'll plug it again. If you would, please hit subscribe on the Apple podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Instagram. Hit like there. Join us uh, later in the week when we've got the YouTube video version of this up where you can watch me and Rob talk about the bourbon that we're drinking. And uh, also, as always, thank you, Will Jones, for this wonderful music in the background. That's all for this week, everybody. It's the Bourbon Showdown podcast. My name is Jesse Jones. Raise your glasses. Let's kick some asses. I'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 